Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Take out your Bibles, and if you turn to the 52nd chapter of the book of Isaiah, we want to go backwards a little bit before we go forwards, and we pick up tonight what is, I think, the pinnacle of all of the Old Testament's picture of Messiah as we cover chapter 53. But before we do, as I reminded you, uh, before we completed our last chapter, that the, these Verses were not originally separated into chapters, and so it is important for us to put the last three verses of chapter 52 together with chapter 53 because it holds the secret to what Isaiah the prophet is saying when we get to chapter 53 because the vision here is this incredible servant of Yahweh, my servant. And it says that in verse 13. And before we continue our time and finish up chapter 53 tonight as well, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, we have come again uh, into your house to study your word, to be instructed by your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, fall afresh upon your people. Uh, Encourage us, Lord, if there's someone who's downcast tonight, Lord, there's someone who's hurting. Their life is in an uproar. Lord, their finances are wrecked. Lord, they're dealing with disease or disaster. God, would the word itself speak life into us tonight. And so encourage us as we study it. Bless us to understand it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13 in chapter 52 of the book of Isaiah. For behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and lifted up very high. And just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and for what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so this sets the stage for this, what's been called the Rhapsody of Redemption, the Mount Everest of prophecy. It has so many superlatives. Uh, It is one of those chapters that entire books have been written on just chapter 52 and 53 alone. I have several of them in my library Uh, One of them is over 400 pages on just these two chapters. And the reason being is there's so much detail as we shared in our last study that's contained here that for many, many, many centuries, the church believed that there was no possible way that these things were written before Jesus came to this earth. And certainly before the events of his life were actually completed, So much so that there have been theories that as as many as three Isaiahs wrote these words, one prior to these two chapters, one these two chapters themselves, and then a third one completing uh, the portion that ends the book specifically 
uh, the latter chapters. And so as we studied before, the Dead Sea Scrolls changed all of that. Um, We now have a single scroll with all of the Isaiahs on it, so it could only be one Isaiah. And it was certainly before the birth of Jesus himself. And so everything that we've read up to this point comes together uh, here really in, in chapter 53. And it pictures this vicarious atonement, this suffering servant of Yahweh. that is going to do for mankind what must be done if any of us are going to be restored in a right relationship with God. Because the New Testament's very clear, the wages of sin is what, church? The wages of sin is death. And so people die, both physically and spiritually, because of the wages of sin. And unless the wages of sin are paid for, if there is not justification, balancing of that debt with God, then the sin remains, the debt is not paid, and you cannot go to heaven. And so mankind has a problem, and that problem is sin. And that problem has to be solved, and it can't be solved by us, because we ourselves are sinners. And so here chapter 53 sets forth what God had planned from the very beginning as the solution to this greatest of all problems, my and your debt of sin. When you look at the Old Testament and you go through and you find this phrase, the servant of Yahweh, it's assigned only to the greats. Moses is called the servant of Yahweh. David is called the servant of Yahweh. Joshua is called the servant of Yahweh. Daniel is called the servant of Yahweh. This is a title in that sense that Uh, applies only to those who do the greatest things for God. And in that sense, this all comes to its grand climax here in the book of Isaiah. And so God is going to speak of the servant. For those of you that are students of your Bible, you know what the New Testament says about the coming one. There in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, who, being in form of God, thought it not something to be grasped as equal with God, and yet he humbled himself and took on the likeness of man. Can you imagine what Jesus had to give up to come to this earth? He came from the glories of heaven and took upon himself the form of a man and gave his life a ransom for you and I. Paul would go on to write, he became a servant. Jesus himself reminded us in Mark's gospel in chapter 10 that the one among you who desires to be greatest must become the servant of all. Amen? So this theme of a suffering servant, Jesus himself spoke in the gospel so clearly. Remember he said, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. That's directly from the mouth of Jesus. Or in John chapter 6. Jesus, when he prays in the garden, what does he pray? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so the culmination of all these things can be seen here in chapter 53. And Isaiah begins to prophesy, and he's just, as he's speaking, he says, Can you imagine receiving this message from the Lord? nearly 700 years before 
the Messiah himself would set foot on the earth. Here's this man that's with the Jewish people facing the onslaught of the Assyrians to be followed by the Babylonians. And he has the picture of a redeemer. And so it begins in chapter 52 by saying that this one would be lifted up. And it's interesting that Jesus himself in John chapter 12 uses this exact same set of phraseology to talk about himself. In fact, he said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. How did Jesus draw all men unto himself? Because he was lifted up. Lifted up on what? Calvary's cross. And so Isaiah sees this picture. And it's interesting because as he sees this, he's seeing crucifixion. He's seeing the cross itself. And Jesus would go on to say, these things he spoke, as the gospel writer John speaks of what Jesus said, signifying the manner of death that he would die. And so here's Isaiah seeing the lifted up servant of God. And that's why these things are so specific. When you read them, you're going, there is no possibility that these, things, these words could be an accident. Verse 14, they were astonished so that his visage was marred more than any man. The, the literal rendering of the Hebrew there in Isaiah says his face would be so marred that he could not be recognized as a man or even a human being. So think about your Savior Jesus and what we know from the New Testament. What happened to him? Not all the gospel authors record this. But remember that the Bible actually says that Jesus faced those Roman soldiers with a sack over his head. And so as he was being beaten, he couldn't flinch. He had no reflexes. He was simply pummeled into oblivion before he was crucified. He was shredded with a flagellum, a, a, a Roman instrument of torture. Imagine being beaten with a, with a lash that has six, eight, ten leather thongs on it with pieces of pottery and glass and lead balls embedded in it. The average person wouldn't even last the 39 lashes that were the maximum that you could receive because it would do so much damage to someone's flesh that they would bleed out before they ever got an opportunity to get that far. Isaiah says this. He says he was so marred that you couldn't recognize him as a human being. Many would see him and they would be shocked. They would be horrified. And so as you see this, he would sprinkle many nations. Kings would shut their mouths you know, Jesus silences just about everybody, doesn't he? Ultimately, he wins. You know, the kings of the earth are making their little proclamations right now. But I can tell you who wins in the end. And it's going to be King Jesus. All this stuff that's going on in our world right now, in our country right now. 
we know the end of the story. The serpent's head has been crushed. He is a defeated foe. Jesus has yet to claim the total victory by coming back. But make no mistake, the battle belongs to the Lord. For what they had not been told they will see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And so chapter 52 ends that way, and we pick up now in chapter 53 with this divine sufferer. Uh, This particular portion of this passage, the first three verses, has been called the, the golden passion play. Dr. Harry Ironsides, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones all said roughly the same thing. It's like it's impossible to read this and not begin to see the cross itself. Verse 1, chapter 53, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isn't it strange? That when Jesus first went to the cross, virtually nobody believed that he was Messiah. Not even his own family believed it. And were it not for the fact that he appeared to them after the resurrection, we're not sure that they would have believed it. So who believed it? Why? Because it's too fantastic. It's miraculous. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and out of a root of dry ground he has no form nor cobbliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Literally, people were dumbstruck at what happened to Jesus. As they looked on the cross, remember many of the passers-by, the Gospels record for us, they said things like, if you're the Son of God, take yourself down from there. People passed by and they shook their heads. It's like some Messiah he is. But they need to wait a few days. Amen? You see this whole play that goes on before us here in Isaiah 53. is just filled with what we would call pathos. It's the, it's the human understanding of suffering. It's like when you, when you listen to this, it's like, how could this even happen? And why would anyone do this? Who's believed a report? The implied answer is actually a negative one. It's rhetorical. The the basic answer is nobody. If you were to tell somebody about this in advance, which God did through the prophet Isaiah, how many Jews actually believed? Almost none. Even though the early church was primarily Jewish, it was almost nobody who believed the report even though they knew in advance what would happen. They could understand it. They could see it. They could have read these words. Jesus himself read from a scroll of Isaiah when he's in a synagogue in Galilee. 
So they had these words. And in fact, he read from this passage. It's horrifying. And I guess it begs the question, what would happen today in most homes when you read this chapter? Would it cause people to actually stop and ponder it and ask the question, who is this? What is this? How did this happen? Who does it refer to? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the answer is, to everybody. God, through these words, was, was revealing Messiah. He was saying, look, this is who he's going to be. This is what he will do. This is where he will go. This is where he will live. This is how he will die. These are the things that will happen. This is what will be said. And as I shared with you before, you could take a couple of these things and maybe guess at them and get a couple of them right. But there's not a chance in the universe that you're even going to get the ones that are just contained here in chapters 50 through 53 all in their perfect order by random chance. It will never happen. And so if one person ever existed in the course of human history that fulfills all these things, there can be no decision made except this one is the one that Isaiah the prophet wrote about before Jesus set foot on the earth. There is no other conclusion you can come to. It's not possible. Not if you are rational. Not if you're thinking. Not if you simply look at these words and say, how could that happen? You see, the truth is, all these things are that Romans 6.23 promise. The wages of sin are death. And so because that's true, and because that price has to be paid, God is now telling us exactly what he's going to do about it. How he's going to solve my problem and yours. And so there is prophetic precision in this passage. They're so specific that when you look at it, notice what's said here. That there'll be no form, no comeliness. Jesus was so normal, so ordinary one might even say maybe he was homely. He was not physically attractive. You know, people, and, and if you're one of the people that sent me a, what you call a painting of Jesus, it's okay. But just so you know, they are not hanging in our house. Because every single painting of Jesus is white, Anglo, blue-eyed, long hair looks like he came from Norway instead of the Middle East. Furthermore, he wasn't handsome. He, he didn't look like Denzel Washington or Idris Elba. He, he, you wouldn't have recognized him. You wouldn't have stood out in a crowd. Why? Because God sent Jesus to this earth to identify with everyone. So there wouldn't have been any unique, beautiful things about him. You know, sometimes you'll see, especially in some of the more orthodox traditions, you'll see these pictures of Jesus with like the Shekinah glory behind his head everywhere he goes. That is Balagna. 
That's how baloney actually is spelled. He didn't do that. He didn't have Shekinah glory everywhere he went. He had bad breath. He had B.O. He had dirt between his toes. He was a normal human being. He needed to shower like everyone else. Now you may go, oh, that's sacrilegious. No, it's not. The Bible plainly declares that there was nothing about him to make him distinguished from any other human being. He was a normal person while he was here, in that sense. Was he God? Yes. But if you saw him as a human being, you wouldn't have gone, oh, that's God's son. Why? Because if Jesus had walked around with Shekinah glory, you would have gone, that's God's son. And so you wouldn't have believed by faith, you would have believed because he had Shekinah glory behind his head. And so this is super important. This is why I I will usually say things, when people get into arguments about things like apologetic, in other words, you're going to make an argument, that argument is going to be something that you believe you can win somebody to Christ with, and it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is you're not saved by knowledge. You're saved by faith. And that faith is a gift from God. It's not of yourself. You can't boast about it. And in the very same way, there's nothing you can know about Jesus that doesn't bring you to the place to where you have to place your faith, your hope, and your trust in Jesus. There's no substitute for it, including he didn't look like a movie star. He was not Max von Sydow from The Greatest Story Ever Told. In fact, when John was in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, something interesting happens. Because John is looking at the scene in heaven and he says, don't weep. The the question is, who's worthy to release the scroll? John looks, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll and loose the seals. And John says, I turned and I saw one who was a lamb who had been slaughtered. When I think about that, here's what happens in my mind. I think the only man-made things in heaven are going to be the scars on Jesus. He's going to bear those scars. John saw Jesus in heaven as the lamb who was slaughtered. You remember Thomas asked, well, unless I... I'm able to stick my finger in your side, then I'm not going to believe. What did Jesus tell him to do? Here you go. Check it out. That's why the prophet Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they pierced. But while he was here, he was despised. He wasn't a Hollywood Jesus. He was an average person that you would have passed by in the street and noticed nothing about him that wasn't absolutely normal in every way, shape, or form. No beauty that we should desire him. The same thing is said about the Apostle Paul. If you read what the Apocrypha has to say about him, you know, we kind of think of Paul as this, you know, giant strapping man that, you know, fought off everyone and survived shipwreck and he was flogged and thrown out of a window and off a wall and he was totally fine and 
history says that Paul may have been under five feet tall. A little bit chunky. He didn't eat bacon because he was a Jew, so... But he might have been a little overweight and had bad eyesight. Maybe he had, you know, some type of disease or something. God doesn't use the things that we hold dear. You know, we look at stuff. It's like we watch television. You're wondering, you know, why can't I look like that person? You know, we're, we're so into body image. And yet God is not into body image because he made all of us in his image. Which means whatever image you are, he made you that way. Therefore, you are exactly the way he made you. So you're good. You're beautiful to the one that it really matters. And so Jesus himself was that way. That's why he was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. Think about that for a second. Jesus knows every single thing that you've ever gone through because he was tested in all ways as we are and yet without sin. I know it's hard for us to think on, but Jesus was hungry. Jesus was sad. Jesus wept. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was sore and tired. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. He was effectively a homeless guy. Think about it. He didn't have a home. He told the disciples, when you go on your journey, don't even take a money bag. You won't need it. Why? Because he didn't have one either. You see, maybe your first response to Jesus at the crucifixion would have been what the Bible actually says. People couldn't even look on it. It was too terrible. If you've ever been in that situation, and I have, there's just something about those situations to where you just, you cannot look. That's what Jesus went through to pay the price of our sin. Marred more than any man ever. Ever. He was, in that sense, a divine substitute. Why do we say that? I want you to take out your highlighter. If you do this to your Bible, I encourage you to. Your, your Bible, the pages themselves are not sacred. The word itself is sacred. But don't treat your Bible like an object of veneration. Your Bible is a tool that God wants you to use. And so it's okay to mark it up. If you look at mine, I have pages you can't even read sometimes because I've, you know, I've gone through that passage so many times. It's like I will eventually have to get a new one, but I retire them. I actually save them. I'll go back and look at that later. But Jesus was a divine substitute. Do you remember what Jesus said from the cross? One of the final seven statements he made was Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou, why have you forsaken me, your son? Here's the answer. 
This is the answer. Verse 4. Surely the divine suffering servant is who's in view. Surely he has borne, circle it, our griefs. Not his, yours, mine, ours. And carried, circle it, our sorrows. Not his, ours. And yet we, not him, you and I, esteemed him stricken as if there was something wrong with him. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he, the divine suffering substitute, was wounded for, circle it, our transgressions, not his. For in him was no sin. There was zero sin in Jesus. Not even one. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the difference between those two things is one is visible on the outside. Transgressions are physical things that have been done. Iniquities are internal things that are also sinful. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions that are waiting underneath the surface for our, yours and mine, iniquities. The chastisement for our peace. Who got peace because of what Jesus did on the cross? I did. I did. That was upon him. By his stripes, we were healed. He didn't need healing. He was the divine substitute. He was perfect in every way. But I needed healing. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is life eternal. By his stripes. Now notice, how many of us have sinned? All? Here's the answer. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned unto our own way, every one of us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of it, circle it, of us, all There's the answer to Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Father God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We thought he was stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted because of our transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. He was chastised for my peace. His stripes healed me. I was the one that was astray. We all, I turned away, everyone to his own way, and every last one of us find our salvation in the one Savior. This is 700 years before Jesus comes to the earth. Kind of sounds like a New Testament passage, doesn't it? You might be asking yourself some of these questions in quiet moments of reflection. But basically, we just got taken straight to the cross. It's as if we're standing beneath the cross going, why, 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 why? Why would anyone have to go through this? Especially, why would God the Son have to go through this? 
And so Isaiah concentrates, he focuses in on what exactly the Apostle Paul describes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus didn't die because he needed to die. He died because I needed to die. He didn't die because the Jewish people were evil. They are no more evil. Annas and Caiaphas were no worse than you and I. Did they have a hand in the death of Jesus? Physically, yes. But are they responsible for his death? No. You are. I am. The whole world is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Not not for God so loved good people. Or God so loved people that were almost getting there kind of, sort of. God so loved the world, the whole world, everyone in the world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants people to get to know him. Sometimes we look at this passage and it's like, oh, you know, I can't believe the Jewish people did that. I want to clear something up for you. To use this passage in any other way than intended is not a good thing. And it clearly says that the Jewish people are not the reason. Annas and Caiaphas are not the reason. The Pharisees are not the reason. The Sanhedrin were not the reason. The scribes were not the reason. The Romans were not the reason that Jesus went to the cross. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's the reason. Every last one of us. And if you look at history... The church has so abused its authority and power in this area and blamed the Jewish people for the death of Jesus that it's actually the source, the reason for the Holocaust. Most people are so ignorant of their history of the Second World War that they don't realize that Adolf Hitler followed precisely the teachings of Martin Luther with this regard. Who blamed the Jewish people so much so that he came out with an outline of the things that needed to be done to the Jewish people. Now that's not saying that every Lutheran, in fact, most Lutherans now disagree with that in its entirety. But the church has been responsible for deflecting the issue here. When when Martin Luther wrote his book, and it's 65,000 words, called On the Jews and Their Lies, he set the seeds for people to blame the Jewish people and ultimately look at them as though God had cast them out. So these passages, it's very important to put 
you in those spots where it says our iniquity. My sin. I put Jesus on the cross. Had nothing to do whatsoever with any race. You could have blamed the Romans. Matter of fact, you kind of could have blamed the disciples, couldn't you? Didn't they abandon him in the Garden of Eden? The guys who knew him best bailed on Jesus that night. Notice what it says. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, we were healed. Who's the we? It's anybody who will believe. If you haven't already marked up this passage, you might want to do that. Because when Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, the all is the all we like sheep. That's everybody. That's me and you and everyone who's ever lived. There's only one answer. That's why Jesus said, not I am one of many ways and many truths and many lives, and you can come to the Father by a whole bunch of different ways. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, And no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only sacrifice for your sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? That's a truth, church. And in this day and time that we live in, I don't know that there's ever been a more important time than us to refocus on the good news of the gospel. Because there's so much junk going on in our world. If we, if we don't focus, we're going to be focused on other things. And we're going to miss the opportunities before us to present the one two, true king to people who need Jesus. If you have to know who killed Jesus, just tell him I did it. You did it. I killed him. Notice verse 7. This incredible sacrifice that's made for you and I. You see, because the verdict is simple. The truth is, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. When Jesus said, The reason that that is true is me. That's why it's true. When he said, my God, my God, why? It's because Jeff Gill's a sinner. Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And you can't take your sin to heaven. Price had to be paid. There had to be a substitute. The verdict was guilty. I got into an email exchange with a guy a couple of days ago, and he was basically believing somehow that because he is a Christian, he now no longer sins. And I pointed him to Romans chapter 7. I said, you might want to read that. It was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, speaking about his own life after he got saved. And it says very clearly, those things which I will to do, I do not do. And those things which I will not to do, those very things. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God, the answer is Jesus. Amen? I still need my debt paid. Even though I'm a believer, 
hard to imagine. But Jesus cancels all of our debt. Past, present, and future. He was oppressed, verse 7 says. Why? Because he was the divine sacrifice. He wasn't like an animal. You see, an animal, when it was slaughtered, brought atonement for a period of time that was previous to the slaughter of the animal. It was good for a period of time, and it was before you made the sacrifice. But Jesus is different because his sacrifice is good for eternity. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. That's why we know Jesus fulfills the role of the Passover lamb. But he does so perfectly, completely, and permanently to those who believe. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, and you can see You who know your Gospels, you're studying along with us in Luke. We're about to come to these passages where Jesus stands before Pilate. What does he say in his own defense? Absolutely zip nada. He doesn't answer the accusations against him. And so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Where was Jesus kept? Prison. What happened to him? He was judged. For who? For me. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Remember the gospel came to the Jew first. Then the Gentile. So it was for Isaiah's people. It is for all people. They made his grave with the wicked. You know where Jesus' body was destined to go after he was crucified? The Hinnom Valley. It was called the Valley of Smoke. Gehenna. Eternal smoke rising up. It's where we get the name, hell. The Hinnom Valley was essentially Jerusalem's trash dump. It burned continually. That's where Jesus' body was going to go. But where did it go? Notice what it says. But with the rich at his death, whose tomb was he buried in? Joseph of Arimathea. What was he? A rich man. Because he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit found in him or in his mouth. This is like going into the Holy of Holies. This is like looking at the death of Jesus going, oh my. Can you imagine what was going on in the lives of the Pharisees at this moment as they they see these things begin to unfold as Jesus is put to death? Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for the body of Jesus. Instead of the Roman soldiers taking Jesus off the cross, tearing his body from the nails normally, they would usually pull the body off and then pull the nails out. I know that's kind of graphic, but I want you to understand what Jesus did. The most unlikely and the most insignificant details are listed in this passage to where you cannot escape the fact of the matter that this was all foretold before it ever happened. Down to minutia. Can you imagine 
Jesus standing in the court of Pilate. Bear in mind that crucifixion didn't even exist when these words were written. Crucifixion actually was invented really in its greatest sense by the Carthaginians. So they lived in Carthage, that's on the north coast of Africa, and they wouldn't be a people group until about 200 years after Isaiah writes. And so when he says they'll be high and lifted up, nobody was being high and lifted up at that point in time. Nobody was pierced. None of those things happened. The Romans were the ones that perfected it. They were the ones that used it as a form of capital punishment. Psalm 34 adds a detail to this whole story. It says there in verse 20 that not a bone of him, the Messiah, would be broken. Why is that important? What happened to the other two thieves on the cross? The thing that always happened to crucifixion victims, they had to get the job done. The lictors, the the executioners would go around and if people were lasting too long because they were standing on a stirrup that was put there so that the agony could last longer, and as they're standing on it, they could push up. That allowed the pressure to come off their chest so they could actually breathe. And so in order to stop that so that they would actually expire faster, they would break at least one of the victim's legs. What does it say? Psalm 34 says, not a bone of him will be broken. Isaiah saying he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet. So almost eight centuries before these things begin to unfold, we see a picture of, of somebody being lifted up on a cross and violently put to death. But why? It was completely volitional on the part of Jesus. Why is that important? Because Jesus was God. And if he had wanted to get out of being murdered, he could have done that very easily. Do you remember what happened to Peter in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested? Walk through this with me in your mind. Here comes a cohort of Roman soldiers, a group of probably 100. With them is the high priest, both of them, Annas and Caiaphas, so a father-in-law and a son-in-law. They're, they're coming together with these guys. There's the high priest's servant. Remember his name was Malchus? Remember what Peter did to him? Peter's going to take his head off, but Peter being Peter couldn't do that right either and lopped off his ear. What did Jesus do? He put the man's ear back on and healed it. And then what did he say to Peter? Peter, do you not know that if I wanted to bring legions of angels to my defense, I could do that? If Jesus didn't want to die, he didn't have to die. But he wanted to die. So when Pilate in John 19 is is marveling at Jesus' silence and he says, why do you not answer me? Remember what Jesus said to Pilate. He didn't answer the question that Pilate asked. He made a statement to Pilate 
telling him, look, I'm the one in charge. Don't you know that I have the power to free you or the power to put you to death? That's what Jesus said to Pilate. He didn't answer Pilate's question. He told Pilate the truth. Dude, if I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. You remember what he went on to say? Pilate, I know you're troubled by this. He could read Pilate's thoughts. He was cut off. That's exactly what Daniel prophesied, by the way, in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, the same words, the Messiah would be cut off. What happened to Jesus? He was cut off from the land of the living for three days. As he laid in that grave, a rich man's grave. As we finish this up, we see God's response to all of this. These verses used to actually trouble me. When I was a young Christian, a long time before I became a pastor, I couldn't understand why this verse, specifically verse 10, was here. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, for he has put him to grief. Do you see it there? He and him, they're not the same person. Who's the he? That would be God the Father. Who's the him? That would be Jesus. It pleased the Lord. Who is that? That's God the Father to bruise him. That would be Jesus, the Messiah, the divine satisfaction that God has in his suffering son. When you make his soul an offering for sin, whose sin? My sin. The hours and the we's that we just looked at. That to as many as received him, to them he became the power to become the sons of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. There's no doubt about it. That's why it pleased the Lord. Why? Again, John 3.16 actually tells us, For God so loved the world. The word there is cosmos. It's all that he created. It's you, me, and everyone else. God loved us so much. That's why it pleased him to sacrifice his son. Because he sees in you such eternal value, he's willing to give up the most precious one in the universe to save you. Jesus gave up his life for me. And you shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What did Jesus say from the cross? What was one of those sayings? It is finished. A single Greek word is used there, tetelestai. It's complete. It's what a painter says when the painting's done. It's what a carpenter says when a chair is finished. There's nothing left to do. It's perfect. God was satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice it doesn't say all. Why is that? Because not everyone believes. 
So it says the truth, it's many. God wants all, but the truth is not all will believe. If you're one of those people that think in the end everyone goes to heaven, the Bible disagrees with you. There's no such thing as universal salvation. To him who believes the sacrifice is sufficient. Unless you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There isn't another way. And so God is saying he will justify. In other words, make your account paid in full. Justification. Take care of your sin debt in its totality. Not only that, he will take the penalty. He won't just square away your debt. He's going to actually take the penalty in your place. That's what he does on Calvary's cross. He shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will divide him with the portion of the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. Jesus died on Calvary's cross. He didn't fall asleep. He didn't go into a trance. He wasn't kind of sort of dead. He wasn't like in Princess Bride, mostly dead. He was dead. Amen? Jesus died in your place. The wages of sin is? Now you know why he died? Because the wages of sin is? And unless Jesus died, the wages of your sin have not been paid. He had to die. He was numbered with the transgressors. Where was Jesus hanging on that cross? Number one was a thief. Number two was Jesus. Number three was what? Another thief. They could have crucified Jesus by himself. He had done nothing. Would have been perfectly appropriate to maybe give him a little bit of slack. But instead he was hung between two thieves. Notice again he bore the sin of how? Many. Not Anyone who doesn't want it born, but everyone who does. Sufficient for all, but applies to those who believe. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. But if you don't call, you're not saved. And made intercession for the transgressors. That, folks, is the power of the gospel. That's what's in view here. It pleased the Lord to take out the entirety of his wrath on his son Jesus. Can you imagine what Jesus bore on the cross when for the first time in eternity he, Jesus the Son, and God the Father were separated as Jesus took your sin. As the sin of the world was heaped on Jesus. And God took his eyes away from his son, averted his eyes, if you will, while Jesus bore that sin. But that wasn't the end of the story. 
the end of the story is that God would be pleased. And God would say, well done. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that phrase actually means fully satisfied. Completely satisfied. Totally paid. There's nothing left. That's why when you have Jesus, you have what you need. But if you don't have Jesus, you can have everything else and not have what you need. He is what you need. That's why when people argue with me about the the centrality of the gospel, I point them back to what would you give for your soul? Because the devil's been offering everything to mankind for as long as mankind's been here. And none of those things can satisfy. Yet the blood of Jesus can satisfy for everyone. And maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here tonight and you've never made that profession of faith. You haven't said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I recognize I can't pay my own debt. There is only one person in the whole universe that can pay your sin debt for you. His name is Jesus. And if you will believe in him, put your faith and hope and trust in him, that God saw his sacrifice and was completely satisfied. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised for our admonition to also be raised. One day, I'm going to go to heaven too. I don't deserve it, and I can't earn it. That's why it pleased the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. There would be no other way that God the Father could be pleased to crush his son, save what it did to me, which is save my soul from eternal damnation. That's why when you read Romans chapter 1, it puts all of this into perspective. For the wrath of God is poured out on all ungodliness. And it goes on to list all kinds of things that are examples of ungodliness. But we're ungodly. I have a sin nature. And so it pleased the Lord to take all that ungodliness, place it on Jesus, and then crush, bruise, and kill his own son so that you and I could live. That is mind-boggling, church. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my sons, including sacrifice my own life. There is nothing as a human father that I would not do for my own sons, including die for them. Now imagine that God being perfect looks at your sin which his son did not commit and he says, I'm satisfied, son, that you're dying in a wretched sinner named Jeff Gill's place. Can you imagine the restraint that God shows every day by not taking out his justice, judgment, and wrath on this earth as people reject Christ every day.
after what God did to his own son on Calvary's cross to redeem us. That's why rejecting the gospel is so unbelievably unwise. Because someday you're going to have to answer to God for that. You're going to take your last breath on this earth and you're going to see God and he's going to go, why did you not believe? I put my son to death for you. Now to bring it back to my analogy, if I allowed one of my sons to die in your place and you rejected that, hell hath no fury like the father that would do that for you. And so don't reject the love of God because it was done because God loves you. You have to tell your friends about Jesus because God loves them. You have to tell your family about Jesus because God loves them. You have to tell the world about Jesus because God loves them. This passage tells the world that God loves them. Don't miss it, church. Because the time, I believe, is coming when that powerful presence of God that Peter experienced in Acts chapter 2, and remember who he's preaching to, and we'll close with this. He's preaching to the very people who had a hand in murdering Jesus physically. The Jewish believers were there and a whole bunch of people who did not believe were there. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter speaking of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was proved to be God by the signs and wonders which he did while he was still living with you, whom according to the predetermined counsel of God and the foreknowledge of God with your wicked hands you have crucified and slain. And then he goes on and later will say, there is no other name under heaven, chapter 4, whereby men must be saved. God saw the death of his son and said, I'm satisfied. Believe in him. And I pray we do. Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that's flirted with this truth or they're watching online, they'll view this later. They'll see it on YouTube or a post someplace on a social media post. Lord, the truth of the matter is, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, for the righteous man, some might dare to die for a good man. Some would even give their lives. But herein is God's love manifest, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, I say, amen. Lord, we who know you say amen. 
we were sinners and we said yes to the only Savior and I pray if there's anyone here tonight that they would do the same they'd simply say in their heart before they walk out these doors yes Lord I'm a sinner and I believe in you Jesus the only Savior I give you my life I want to honor you with it forgive my sin write my name in the Lamb's book of life Lord thank you the work is done, the cross is complete, and that we are Savior, in our Savior, are saved because of what you did. We bless you, Lord. We thank you that you paid it all. There's nothing left to do but believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.